Thanks for tuning in to Sassy's podcast. My name is Mustafa and I am part of the Sassy Organizing Committee. For those not familiar with Sassy, which stands for South Asia Solidarity Initiative, we are a political collective based in New York City that seeks to stand with those in South Asia who dissent, especially against the disposition and oppression of people and communities along the lines of caste, gender, class, religion, race, ethnicity, sexuality, and religion. This episode is part of a two-part series Sassy is doing on Kashmir. For the first part, we are featuring interviews and discussions with Kashmiri scholars and activists to discuss the current state of India's military occupation in Kashmir, especially in the aftermath of, of the revocation of Article 370. For the second half, we will be featuring Sassy's biggest lessons and challenges while organizing for Kashmiri liberation over the past year as well as personal perspectives of collective members on our own decolonial awakening around Kashmir. We have three speakers with us today whom I'll introduce. First is Muhammad Junaid, who is an assistant professor of anthropo anthropology at the Massachusetts College of Liberal Arts. He has a PhD from the City University of New York with research on violence, nationalism, culture, and politics in South Asia. He has written extensively on military occupation, history, space, and political subjectivity in Kashmir. Thanks for joining us, Junaid. Thank you, Mustafa. So next up is Deepthi Mistri, who is an associate professor of women and gender studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. She is a member of the Critical Studies Collective and Critical Kashmir Studies Network. Her work currently focuses on literary and visual representations of militarized occupation in Indian administered Kashmir. Glad to have you with us, Deepthi. Thank you, Mustafa. And lastly, we have Azad, who is a New York City-based organizer and is part of her collective, SASI. They are from Pakistan-occupied Kashmir and works to build power and resistance to occupation in the South Asian diaspora, especially through a queer and trans lens. So for the listeners, I wanted to start off first by delving into the historical context of Kashmir. So uh, Junaid, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit of what was happening with Kashmir pre-partition and how did Kashmir come under India and Pakistan's control? Okay, um, thank you so much, Mustafa, for having me uh, on your podcast. Um, when one begins to talk about Kashmir, uh, the first thing one should keep in mind is that we have to unlearn a lot of history about South Asia before we can like actually properly frame the question of Kashmir. The typical narratives that you have heard uh, here in the US, but also which are the dominant ones in India and Pakistan are either the nationalist um, accounts from India and Pakistan, or uh, the, this broader international dispute uh, discourse. The in Indian nationalists and Pakistani nationalists accounts begin with the partition, 
where Indian claim on Kashmir is that it is, um, it, you know, part of this historic sacred geography of India, uh, which is infused with, um, you know, Hindu identity. Uh, and a part of that claim is that the Hindu Maharaja of Kashmir in 1947 signed what is called the instrument of accession, um, based on which um, Kashmir is now, according to India, legally part of uh, uh, India. The Pakistani account is uh, based on the idea that the um, Kashmir is a Muslim majority region and part of South Asia and partition of South Asia, British uh, South Asia, British India took place on the idea that uh, Muslim majority regions of uh, that empire would become Pakistan, especially if they had contiguous boundaries with the newly formed state of Pakistan. So these claims both are based on uh, an idea which do not necessarily refer to the wishes and aspirations of the people of Kashmir. There is a, a larger history of what has happened to Kashmir, which goes, which is, uh, which can be framed uh, based on what was going on in Kashmir before 1947 and what 1947 was really about. Um, let me begin with the second, uh, what 1947 was really about. Um, 1947 is when the British left on the, you know, their empire in South Asia and in the wake of their hastened withdrawal, uh, these boundaries where communal boundaries were created in, in India, between India and Pakistan. And, uh, but this region was not only home to uh, directly ruled um, uh, peoples, there, there were also more than 500 princely states which were indirectly ruled or under this larger suzerainty of uh, the British. Uh, many of these uh, kingdoms did not wish to join India or Pakistan and especially the larger ones uh, Hyderabad, Junagadh, Kashmir, um, they had uh, complicated issues. Um, Hyderabad had a Muslim ruler uh, who did not want to join a Hindu majority India, but he had a, a Hindu majority subject population. Um, Junagadh ha had a similar issue, a Muslim ruler with a majority Hindu population, while Kashmir was a, a, a Muslim majority region with a Hindu ruler. Um, in the case of Hyderabad and uh, Junagadh, India um, in, invaded Hyderabad in what is called the police action, which was actually a bloody uh, invasion, bloodied invasion. Uh, thousands of people were killed. Uh, in Junagadh, India conducted a plebiscite which went in favor of India. In case of Kashmir, uh, you know, um, it became quite complicated. Now, uh, this is where uh, it gets quite interesting. Um, Kashmir had a long history of its own sense of identity, sense of regional belonging. Um, you know, when Kashmir, before 1947, there was a mass movement going on in Kashmir um, from within its different regions, uh, led by peasant uh, uh, activists, led, led by artisan activists, uh, led by rebels in the mountainous regions um, who were uh, who had been crushed under this monarchy, this Hindu monarchy, for more than a, uh, for around a century, since 1846, um, and so their aspirations were different from the aspirations of people in South Asia. Um, you, know, you know, when before 1947, when Kashmiris were struggling uh, for freedom, they didn't imagine that they were going to be having to choose between India and Pakistan because these two states did not exist. You know, um, uh, 
the Kashmiri population, and when I say Kashmiri, I mean uh, all the peoples of the regions uh, who are Kashmiri and non-Kashmiri speaking peoples who were this, what are called the state subjects of the historic state of Jammu and Kashmir. They had all, some of them had similar aspirations of staying united and like living in an independent country. Others had, um, were more closer perhaps to the future Indian state. And uh, uh, some, for instance, in, the, in Jammu region, uh, Muslims were closer to the idea of Pakistan. Um, but uh, these aspirations were not addressed at the time of partition. In, uh, in August uh, 1947, uh, the Maharaja, uh, Maharaja's uh, military and uh, his supporters from the mainland India who were Hindu nationalists came in and started assaulting the Muslims of Jammu. Um, there were a series of massacres, which has now, it's in, in the Kashmiri imaginary, it's now uh, referred to as the Jammu massacre with the capital M. But these were a series of massacres that started in the middle of August and lasted until November, uh, where uh, close to 237,000 uh, people were killed, half a million were evicted. And in uh, some regions of Western Kashmir, there were Hindus and Sikhs who were displaced and pushed into uh, either India or uh, the, uh, the part of Kashmir, which was still under Maharaja's control. Um, and so that became the context in which um, this violent chaos that was erupting all over um, with Indian forces, um, especially the, the troops of what was, was called the Maharaja of Patiala, uh, his troops had arrived, the RSS Jatas or troops, stormtroopers had arrived, and Hindu Maharaja of Kashmir was um, hoping to at least to retain parts of Jammu under him, because he knew that the, the Muslim majority Kashmir would not stay with him because they had been opposed to him uh, for more than two decades and, and even before that. Um, so that, that became an immediate context to uh, the Indian invasion. India promised the Maharaja that they are going to defend his rule if he signed what is called the instrument of accession. And Maharaja signed that um, in, on, August, uh, on October 27, 1947. Um, although um, many um, scholars have argued that Indian troops had already begun to arrive before then. Before then. Um, so, um, this in you know Indian invasion was preceded by uh, what are called the Kabailis or the so-called tribals from Khyber Pakhtunwa or uh, at that time Northwest Frontier Province who were uh, hearing listening to stories of all of these massacres taking place in Jammu of displacements and they were coming to liberate Kashmir um, and which became the immediate pretext for the Maharaja to seek Indian uh, intervention. Um, now, uh, the instrument of accession itself kind of uh, put a spanner into what was going on in relationship to, uh, you know, the Maharaja's uh, agreement with Pakistan. In, in August, he had signed what is called the standstill agreement with Pakistan, which gave him several months to decide where, the, where, where he would go eventually, whether he would join India, Pakistan. Although some scholars have argued that he clearly wanted to stay independent. Um, even in Kashmir, many parties had imagined that he might uh, either he might stay the the this dynasty will stay with some kind of um, figurative or figural uh, status rather than a uh, full uh, monarchical role as they had enjoyed until then, uh, or that uh, the this dynasty will end and Kashmir will become an entity in a, in its own right. 
Um, but this, the Indian invasion kind of changed the dynamic entirely of the region because India was in, a, in reality, although they were on our borders, they were on the borders of the historic state of Jammu and Kashmir, there was no direct line of communication between Kashmir and uh, mainland India. Um, all our rivers, all our historic trade routes and roads went westward towards Punjab, which had become part of Pakistan at that time. Uh, it went through uh, regions of what later on became Azad Jammu and Kashmir and uh, Mirpur. Uh, so th this is like a, this uh, historical context in which Kashmiris were caught at that time, no, not expecting that they were soon going to be occupied uh, by India. Uh, the events led to war between India and Pakistan, uh, you know, because they joined in in November and led to stalemate. Um, India took the matter to the United Nations in 1948 and UN passed this resolution called uh, UN Security Council Resolution 47, which called for immediate ceasefire, uh, asking the Indian and Pakistani troops in Kashmir to stay, stand where they were but, and put their weapons down or like cease fire. Uh, second, it asked for demilitarization of the regions that Pakistani military had taken over and for India to take maximum of its uh, majority of its troops out, leaving a bare minimum so that the third aspect of this UN resolution, which was called the plebiscite, could be conducted. India, in principle, agreed that plebiscite was going to be held. Uh, India, in principle, agreed that Kashmir was a disputed territory, which is the second aspect I was going to say earlier. Um, but the plebiscite only gave the option of India and Pakistan. Again, you know, Kashmir becomes, uh, is seen as a disputed territory, erasing the history of the people of the region and uh, their long held aspirations. And so that's becomes the historical context of what, uh, you know, I mean, since then we have had a status quo. Um, India signed several agreements with, you know, Kashmiri leaders. There were wars between India and Pakistan since then where territories were exchanged violently. Um, and, um, you know, tens of thousands of people have uh, died since then. Um, so just last point, uh, if one was, one were to reframe what happened in 1947 is that Kashmir is not an unfinished business of partition. Kashmir is a case of um, unfinished uh, colonization or a recolonization. It's a case of recolonization where India, once it became itself uh, decolonized or in, in terms of like British withdrawing, uh, colonized its peripheries, especially uh, Kashmir. Uh, you know, And so um, we have to look at Kashmir uh, as a case of modern day or neo-colonial um, uh, setup. Uh, thank you for sharing such an informative overview, Junaid. Um, so I wanted to pass the torch to Dipti. Um, maybe you could tell us of the disappearances of Kashmiris and other forms of state violence that have been perpetrated by the Indian state for many decades. Thanks, uh, Janet, for that wonderfully comprehensive overview. I'm always in admiration of how Janet provides the sort of broad historical sweep. Um, so, you know, since your question was about disappearances, that kind of um, brings us into the 90s. Um, so, you know, we're kind of moving ahead in time um, a little bit. And, you know, I'm going to try to sort of answer the question from my vantage as a 
feminist scholar of this form of state violence um, in conversation with other feminist scholars who've also written um, about enforced disappearances and resistance to enforced disappearances um, specifically. So, you know, broadly speaking, this, you know, this is a form of state violence that is part of a larger repertoire of state violence that began to be enforced in Kashmir um, around the 1990s. So in 1989, following um, sort of these rigged elections in Kashmir, there was sort of widespread dissatisfaction, there was widespread protest. Um, and, you know, the sort of um, armed rebellion really began to take off around that time. And so large numbers of young men crossed over to Pakistan to get arms training and sort of return. And the, the tariq in its sort of modern manifestation um, really took off at that time. And enforced disappearance was part of a repertoire of, um, you know, what the state calls its counterinsurgency tactics. And so it was, you know, there were, there were other forms of violence. So, you know, um, Kashmiri sort of like um, neighborhoods and households began to experience widespread crackdowns. Uh, torture has been used as a sort of like routine form of um, state violence in Kashmir. Um, in 1991, there was an infamous um, instance of um, mass rape of um, all of the women in two villages, in twin villages of Kunan and Poshpura. Um, by um, Indian forces. Um, and so enforced disappearance was part of this larger landscape of, of state violence. So I just want to sort of begin by situating it in that way. And what it is, is this is a form of violence by repressive states, um, whereby people are arrested, detained, um, and, you know, so to speak, disappeared um, by the state, right? So they're taken away, the state basically abducts them, refuses to reveal their whereabouts to their families, um, and sort of you know, the, it, this is a process that entraps families in, in long search for um, their disappeared family members. And they're kind of caught between grief on the one hand and hope on the other, because you don't quite know what has happened to the person, but you're spending a lot of time um, looking for them. And so, you know, this is a form of violence that has been seen historically in, you know, states like Argentina, in Sri Lanka, in the United States after 9-11, um, you know, large numbers of Muslim men began to be disappeared like off the streets of places like Brooklyn um, and, um, you know, certainly in Kashmir. So that is what it is. And in, in Kashmir sort of, um, you know, throughout the 1990s, it was young Muslim men once again, who were sort of um, routinely disappeared often from their very homes um, on sort of suspicion of being associated with this popularly um, supported movement for self-determination. Uh, and about 80 to 90,000 um, of such men are said to have been disappeared through this period. And I'm using the phrase, they have been disappeared advisedly because in the, in the scholarship, um, and of course the activism, um, because the scholarship actually follows um, the activism um, around um, enforced disappearances, um, that, is, that is the kind of phraseology. So, you know, the, the fact that they have been disappeared um, rather than saying that they have disappeared, marks that somebody has disappeared them. They didn't just sort of vanish into thin air, but they were actually disappeared by um, state agencies. Um, and of course, as you can imagine, the effect is to you know, spread fear, is to sort of disable resistance. Um, and of course, it has the effect of disrupting families and communities. Um, I also want to talk about the gendered effects of this um, you know, on Kashmiri society as a whole, um, because while enforced disappearances um, uh, you know, it's largely young Muslim men, as I pointed out, who have been disappeared in this way um, through much of the 1990s. Um, the, the impacts also fall on women who are sort of left behind, right? So uh, the mothers, the sisters, the, the wives of the disappeared who 
are left behind. Often the disappeared sort of young men were the primary breadwinners in their families. And so a certain form of economic destitution followed for the sort of women family members, as well as other forms of vulnerability that come from being, um, you know, um, left um, alone in, in a sort of like larger patriarchal militarized state. Um, and so, you know, that that is actually one of the reasons why uh, in many states that have seen this form of um, violence, um, women often are the ones who end up leading anti-disappearance movements. And, uh, you know, again, in Argentina, we've seen this. In Sri Lanka, we've seen this. And in Philippines, we've seen this. And it's no different, once again, in Kashmir, where it is women who have led um, the anti-disappearance movement. Um, and so, you know, the iconic um, association of parents of disappeared persons um, led by um, Parmina Hangar, whose son was disappeared um, by, by the state um, is, is sort of one example of that. And this is, you know, this is a group of um, women and relatives of the, the disappeared who gather um, in a public park in Srinagar um, you know, for like for for the past many many years, they have been doing this and sort of kind of politicizing their grief in the process, and um, you know, bringing their mourning out um, into into public in this way. Um, and so, you know, one last thing I'll say perhaps before we move on is that um, in the scholarship around um, enforced disappearances, and I want to refer to our colleagues' uh, recent book just come out, um, Atharzia's uh, Resisting Disappearance. Um, which uh, provides an ethnographic account of, um, you know, the, the women of the Association of Parents of Disappeared Persons and, and their activism. So I wanted to say that, you know, in the, in the scholarship, the attention to the activism of, of these, um, these women has um, sort of provided or allowed for the articulation of an anti-occupation feminism, um, which, you know, attends to their political activism as a form of uh, women's agency, women's uh, Muslim women's agency in Kashmir, political agency in Kashmir, with effects that um, you know certainly may be seen as feminist, even though it is not necessarily avowedly a feminist movement in the way in which we ordinarily understand a feminist movement, but it has sort of like you know feminist impact, um, just just in the impact of um, opposing um, sort of the the colonial context in Kashmir. Um, you know, that, that alone is a kind of a feminist gesture and a feminist move. And so I just want to lay that out to start with, and maybe when we circle back to talking about what, you know, what solidarity looks like, what feminist solidarity can look like in the context of Kashmir, maybe we can come back to this. Thank you for sharing, uh, Deepthi. Um, so yeah, um, in terms of even current times, like on August uh, 5th, Fifth, uh, 2019, all Kashmiris uh, woke up and discovered a military lockdown in place in Indian occupied Kashmir. And uh, people were forbidden to leave their homes, go to work, or interact with the outside world in a virtual manner. Uh, and when Home Minister Amit Shah announced that Article 370 has been rescinded, the whole settler colonial project in Kashmir went into full fruition. So Azad, can you uh, walk us through this account of what took place um, within IOK and what you yourselves have individually seen occurring in the diaspora in the months after this news? 
Yeah, of course. Thanks, Mustafa. And yeah, again, I want to reiterate my gratitude for Janae and Mystery and your, uh, sorry, BP, and your um, scholarship and your expertise. I think that the idea of Kashmir as a state of recolonization or as an issue of recolonization really jumped out at me. And I think settler colonialism is just, you know, another, you know, instance of state sanctioned and state encouraged violence um, that we're seeing play out in a very contemporary way. Um, so as Mustafa, you know, pointed out in August 2019, um, these two articles of the Indian Constitution, which were providing uh, Jammu and Kashmir with um, a special status, were revoked. And so what that immediately did in revoking that special status was bifurcate the area. So it's separated into Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh. And the reason that this is very clearly a... Um, settler colonialist project is really one that's interested in uh, changing the demographics of the region, right? So we've seen similar things, you know, I think transnational solidarity is a really big piece that continues to jump out for all of us who are invested in Kashmiri liberation, because we've seen this play out in the West Bank in Palestine, we've seen this play out in Tibet, you know, this, this sort of, um, if if there's a handbook for settler colonialism, they're kind of passing it around. Um, and we're seeing it happen in real time. So some of the changes that went into effect after August, 2019 um, were of course the communication block uh, blockade um, and intermittent curfews. I think there's there's you know estimates that we're not sure um, how accurate they are, but I remember reading something about how maybe 7,000 people were arrested in the last year since that. Um, folks who were, you know, said to be dissenting or in violation of curfew in, in some way, shape or form. So would lo also love to hear y'all's thoughts about what you have heard as well. Um, but in addition to all of these arrests and the blockades, uh, we've also seen things like the new domicile law, which went into effect earlier this year, I believe. Um, during the pandemic, actually, if I'm remembering correctly, um, in which it changes sort of the, the laws of who can get citizenship status or legal status, whatever that means in Jammu and Kashmir, so that if you are a resident of Jammu and Kashmir for 15 years, uh, you can be eligible to, to have that citizenship status. And it decreases if you're a student, I think you have to be a student or something like that for seven years, or you have to take some exams. But essentially, the the point of that is to ensure that it's not it's not just Kashmiris now who are going to be considered part of Kashmir. So in changing the requirements for who can be a citizen or who can be a legal permanent resident of Kashmir, you're shifting, and it, this is an intentional choice, right? It's not by accident, um, shifting the population that lives in Kashmir. And with that, on the other side of that, beyond just the normal civilian population. We're seeing all these mining, these companies that are really interested in investing, quote unquote investing in Kashmir, right? Which means developing Kashmir for their own profit through the encouragement of the Indian government because the Indian government has for a very long time had a very big stake in changing the demographics and changing the ownership of Kashmir. And so I, uh, I believe something like 70% of recent land mining rights went to non-Kashmiris, people who are outside of Kashmir. And so before last August 5th, the decision um, to revoke those articles, that wouldn't have been possible. The non-people outside of Kashmir couldn't um, have bid on those plots of land. And 
in fact, at this point, the Kashmiris had still had a communication blockade. So if you're on an internet bidding site for these land pieces, the Kashmiris in Kashmir can't even access that bidding site. So of course, they're excluded time and time again from investing in their own uh, land and communities. And so I think that's something that we're going to continue to see ramp up. We're going to see this outside quote unquote investment. We're going to see, I believe, domicile laws change even more to become more lax so that non-Kashmiris can enter Kashmir, can buy property in Kashmir, can do all sorts of things in Kashmir and essentially shift the demographics, push Kashmiri people out, push Muslim people out, because that has really been the agenda from the beginning. Um, and as if that wasn't enough, there are all these new media policies in place now too, which are, you know, put really stringent restrictions on what journalists can say, and I think changes the way that the government can come after journalists if they say that they're saying something that is anti-nationalist, right? And so this falls in line, I think, in general with the state-sanctioned violence that the Indian state and the BJP and RSS is interested and invested in, which is the you know, the right-wing fascism that we see rising all over the world, um, the repression of free media, the repression of people's access to internet, um, and the repression of Kashmiri people's access to their own, to their own land. Um, and I think it's, it's easier, I think historically there's a little bit of a cognitive dissonance where you can read a history book and say, 30 years ago this thing happened, these people were pushed out of their homes and they were put in refugee camps wow, that was like, that was a crazy thing that happened. Um, but I think that's something that we're seeing developing right now in Kashmir. And so to be living in this really scary moment and a critical moment, I think, in Kashmir's history um, is something that we've been up against for a long time and especially in this last year. So I'd love to hear um, from Deepthi and Junaid if you have any other thoughts on what's been going on over the last year. Over the last year, as we have been uh, talking, learning, thinking together uh, as Kashmiris, as uh, non-Kashmiri, uh, pro-Kashmir activists and scholars, um, you know, the, the major thing that emerges is that we are um, in the contemporary era placed quite precariously um, as a people, you know, because um, in over the last uh, decade or so, especially since these authoritarian populist uh, regimes have come to power all across uh, the world, um, uh, we've seen a tremendous decline uh, for any regard for human rights and democratic values and norms. Um, and uh, people like the Rohingyas, uh, people like, uh, you know, Kashmiris, people in uh, many Kurdish people, uh, Palestinians, um, and many other indigenous communities all across the world from North to South America. I mean, um, closest example, uh, I mean, I live in Western Massachusetts now, but if you look at the first peoples of in Canada, what's happening to their rights, um, so there's a general decline of uh, any consideration for uh, people without power, people without states, people without, uh, you know, arm, armies and weapons. So that's one. And they're under tremendous ass assault from uh, ma a majority 
communities or majority uh, nationalists. In India, um, you know, we have seen, I mean, the, the Hindu nationalist streak has always been there, um, especially since late 19th century and then in the formation of RSS in the 1920s and, uh, you know, and how uh, over the last uh, uh, 30 years, they have really, really established themselves as a political force and now have been directly in power over the last um, 10, 10 to 15 um, years. Um, so that's one. Uh, I think, and at the regional level, at, in the level at the level of South Asia, we have seen, uh, um, you know, hardening of um, uh, position, nationalist positions. Indian, um, you know, system has almost been dismantled by the RSS. They have taken over um, key institutions in the state, from uh, judiciary to the political office to the legislative um, branches. Uh, they now occupy, um, they influence the military in enormously. Uh, they influence, um, you know, previously autonomous institutions um, that in were investigative agencies. So um, India has slid uh, fast into a majoritarian fascist state, um, as Azad just mentioned too. Um, and at the level of Kashmir, um, uh, what has happened is that we are in a very fluid geopolitical state where um, uh, we're kind of caught between India, Pakistan, and China now. Um, and our borders uh, are like, um, I'm on, I'm on, you know, under tremendous strain and pressure um, because what, what has happened is that it's now free for all. Whoever can take over the territory belong, you know, the territory belongs to them. There are uh, no rules at play. And in this whole scenario, um, the, the August 5, 2019 decisions were like, uh, the key impulse was all of these things coming together. Indian regime feeling emboldened enough to just like formalize the annexation that had taken place um, in 1947. Basically saying that if we don't care at all about Kashmiri people, um, we're, we're not, forget about plebiscite, forget about your democratic rights, forget about your, um, you know, yourself as a people because uh, August 5 was an assault on um, Kashmiri identity, their, their, their political identity, not their ethnic identity, but their political identity, their as aspirations for freedom. Um, and so uh, they feel that internationally they have a carte blanche, they can do whatever they, they want and nobody is going to bat an eyelid. Um, and so Kashmiris are like um, caught in a great dilemma right now. You know, it's a, what used to be our struggle for freedom is now really a struggle for survival. Uh, we're wondering whether uh, under, we used to fight occupation for liberation, you know, so that we could like live an independent life of dignity. Um, but now uh, what under this new settler colonial regime that Azad referenced, where um, you know the Indian government is pushing people, actively pushing people to come in and to live in Kashmir, change the demographics. Uh, we are wondering whether we will survive as a people at all. Well, whether there's any future for um, Kash people of Kashmir, whether we're going to be pushed out, you know, uh, whether we'll be ethnically cleansed, or whether we're going to be, uh, uh, you know, Kashmir is going to be divided into some kind of like a. Um, you know, settler colonial state where there will be two sets of population, the dominant uh, colonizing population and the subdued uh, colonized population. 
um, creating this permanent hierarchy um, in, into our future. So yeah, these are all these dynamics that are taking place now, and we need to keep all of this context in, in mind. You know, another thing to also bear in mind is, um, you know, to Azad's question of, um, you know, how this post-abrogation scenario has unfolded over the past year, like, you know, I'm just thinking of some of the arguments that were made um, in favor of the reading down of, of Article 370 in light of um, something that's been happening just this past week, which is, you know, the Hathras rape case, um, the rape of a young 19-year-old Valmiki woman in Uttar Pradesh by four upper caste uh, men. And, um, you know, the sort of um, Uttar Pradesh sort of um, government's, um, you know, denial that the, the rape has even happened. I mean, that's where they are right now. And I'm mentioning all of this in context of the way in which um, arguments for minority rights were mobilized in order to make the argument for um, the abrogation or the reading down of Article um, 370. And I kind of switched from abrogation to reading down because constitutional lawyers have said that it was unconstitutional. You cannot abrogate Article 370. Um, and so, you know, part of the argument was that that move was carried out presumably on behalf of women, on behalf of LGBT populations, and on behalf of uh, Valmiki families. Um, so in 1957, about 200 Valmiki families were brought over to Kashmir from Punjab because there was a large-scale sanitation strike in Kashmir. And so there are about 200 Valmiki families sort of in Kashmir um, that didn't have access to sort of, um, you know, government jobs, for example. And, you know, similar arguments were made about sort of women's rights and LGBT rights. And, um, you know, one question we can ask is if the only way of, um, of warranting rights for minoritized populations is to erode the sovereignty of an entire people, is that the only way? Um, and the other thing that, you know, the reason why I wanted to point to Hathras is there's plenty of house cleaning to do. If India is that concerned about it's sort of like a Valmiki population as it should be, um, then, you know, that the, 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 what, what's unfolded in Hathras really shows us uh, you know, how much um, violence and sort of like the vulnerability that that population has in the context of India as well, not just in, in the context of Kashmir. So one thing that I think we have to think about is the way in which, uh, you know, minority rights are, you know, this there's a veneer of sort of progressive sounding um, um, rights concerned language that is used to um, erode sovereignty in the context of Kashmir. I think also that uh, Ditti's point um, speaks a, a lot to certain liberal conceptions uh, of India as well. You know, um, for the Hindu right wing, August five was uh, basically blatantly saying that we don't care about you. You know, um, Kashmir is ours. We're going to do whatever we can. And the liberal argument was that uh, we're gonna. What about the Valmiki uh, community in Jammu? What about the LGBTQ rights? What as if India really cares about that, um, you know? And or what about uh, these women who marry outside? Um, clearly, of course, there's this uh, a lot of uh, historical amnesia um, there as well. Um, first of all, uh, I don't think India can dictate to Kashmir um, how. 
um, anything you know that India is more liberal or progressive than Kashmir. Uh, Kashmir has has a history of uh, progressive legislation. Um, Kashmir was not uh, a regressive state. Um, you know these things. For instance, the the citizenship Kashmiri state subjected to Valmikis could have been easily granted. Um, you know without. Uh, abrogating the whole, uh, whole thing or you know dividing up the uh, the, the Kashmir state um, and the, the there was already a case in the high court which you know Sushila Sani versus the state of Jammu and Kashmir which had clearly stated that women marrying outside do not lose their inheritance rights the children can inherit their except uh, inherit their uh, properties except their husbands couldn't those things could have been easily fixed as well. You know, it's not like there was like a mass agitation in Kashmir against these issues. Like most of these, um, since the 90s, when these issues have come up, nobody in Kashmir has ever said, don't give uh, citizenship to Valmiki community. Nobody has said that women should be forced to lose their, um, you know, rights. And nobody has said that, uh, you know, I mean, across India, that this Article 377 was only very recently passed. Um, and uh, it was applicable equally to to Kashmir. Uh, there was like the one of the key things about Article three seventy was that it had become instead of like preventing Indian legislation to cover Kashmir, it had become a pipeline literally where Indian laws became applicable to Kashmir as well. Uh, so all of these things were already in place. There is really I mean, beyond the rhetoric of. All of this, there is really no substance to um, such arguments. Uh, so, which makes me, uh, Kashmiris believe that it's just an assault on Kashmiri political identity that they were seeking on August 5, 2019. And I, I also think that reminds me, I mean, this, you know, is a historical, uh, what, what's it called, like embedded feminism, like homo nationalism, pinkwash, like all these things are you know, the tools of, of imperialism to justify, as you're saying, Junaid, there's no reason you need to jump to settler colonialism just because your husband isn't getting an inheritance. Like, you know, that's, that is something that is so intentional um, as part of like a settler colonialism agenda. Um, and also it, it, it really attempts to erase how the Indian state itself is enacting violence on Kashmiri women, right? Like as, you know, the, the your scholarship like goes, like, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't do that. They're doing that. Let's not talk about what I've done. Let's not talk about how I have, you know, ostracized uh, queer people or I've, um, you know, enacted so much violence on women's bodies. And one thing, I mean, and, you know, trigger warning for like, creepy Indian rapey men saying terrible things about Kashmiri women. But one of the big things that was happening, I think in the wake of August, 2019 was on the internet, all of these Indian men were like, oh, can't wait to go get myself a fair Kashmiri wife, right? So there's this very specific um, grotesque, uh, you know, sexualized violence or, or sexualized like uh, desirability or not desirability I, I wouldn't use that word um but this like fetishization like fetishizing right, of Kashmiri women because it's all about the power and control and subjugation of like an, a Kashmiri woman's body what's yet yeah, another way we can do it right we're gonna go in we're gonna we're gonna settle Kashmir we're gonna like uh, you know forcibly marry these women probably 
Um, and that's going to be the life that we live, right? So it's all about the taking, it's all about occupation on every single level, right? Not just the literal, we're taking your land, but we are taking away whatever it is that makes you Kashmiri and whatever it is that makes you autonomous, whether that's out in the personal bodily autonomy level or the state autonomy level. Mm-hmm. And um, I think quickly, you know, this, um, because um, Hathras uh, has been mentioned, I, we need to recall also that only a couple of years ago, um, not even a, yeah, not even that, um, there was another case of an eight year old, which uh, mm-hmm. you know, Girl, little girl yeah. from Gujar community in Jammu who was uh, raped, gang raped by um, upper caste people of that region. Mm-hmm. And the Indian government led by Modi and his party, BJP, actively came out in support of the rapists. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah, so organized marches. <laughs> organized <laughs> marches in support of the rapists. And uh, it was Kashmiris who were basically demanding justice for uh, that girl, you know, the, the victim, while um, the BJP and the Indian government ha- showed absolutely zero interest in providing justice. So when they say that they are going, they are doing all of this for the sake of Kashmiri women, it just, you know, it's like this, that's why it's just a case of recolonization because their discourse echoes uh, the mm-hmm. this, uh, colonial complex um, saving, you know, the, the Americans saving, used to say yeah. that saving the saving brown women from brown men, and now mm-hmm. it's the same thing that Indians say without, as they say in Urdu, you know, uh, not looking at their own gareban. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, long-standing strategy of mobilizing feminist discourses, and now um, you know, mobilizing sort of queer, sort of queer rights discourses. Um, in the service of uh, imperial ambitions. Thank you all for sharing. I mean, it's all like uh, reflective of how Kashmir in itself has morphed from a decades long military occupation into now a full fledged settler colonial project. So I think I I wanna now focus on 2020. We're in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. And even in the months after the revocation of Article 370, there were mass arrests that were made that really disrupted the political and domestic life in Kashmir. So following that, now we have the coronavirus pandemic. So maybe Dipti, you could start with how the pandemic and even the arrests prior to the pandemic have changed the dynamics of the settler colonial project. I guess to, you know, to answer that question, how did this pandemic change the dynamics? I think we have to understand how the pandemic lands on the timeline of Kashmir that we've already been talking about, right? So Azad just gave us this overview of what was happening after August 5th. And so when the pandemic arrives, like globally, um, the, you know, it, it arrives as a kind of break, right? Something new. And this sort of like language of lockdown is kind of becomes globally resonant for the first time. It seems like for most people, um, you know, there's there's that the lockdown is one experience that really distinguishes like the the moment of the pandemic. Whereas for people in occupied territories like you know like Kashmir, it was it was kind of more of the same in a way, right? So the pandemic exacerbated uh, things that you know that were already underway after August fifth. You know, the suspension of um, physical and digital uh, movement, right? Like both of these were restricted in in Kashmir. Um, You know, I think Azad Ali mentioned that um, 
you know, accompanying um, the sort of the, the abrogation on August 5th was also the suspension of internet and then what later came to be sort of understood as the longest internet shutdown in history um, was in Kashmir. Um, and so, you know, the pandemic arrives in the middle of all of this. So from August 5th, I think until January, there was an internet suspension. And so, you know, internet when it was restored was only 2G, so which is a really slow speed um, internet. Uh, and at the time that the pandemic arrives in Kashmir, Kashmir is still on this incredibly slow um, internet. Um, you know, the health crisis that was already underway and a health crisis was already underway after August 5th only comes to be exacerbated in that particular moment, right? So, um, you know, I remember sort of like being really struck by um, something that a cardiologist said in an, in an interview um, after August 5th, where he said, there's no golden hour in Kashmir anymore. And, you know, the golden hour is the first hour after the onset of a heart attack, where if you are able to intervene within that hour, um, then there's a possibility of like, of, um, you know, arresting or, or perhaps even reversing the effects of that heart attack. And in Kashmir, the way in which this looked was, you know, WhatsApp was suspended, cardiologists were not able to sort of contact each other, a lab technician is stuck in some part of the city and has to sort of negotiate razor wire in order to come, um, you know, carry out tests. Um, and, um, you know, the internet is very, very slow. Communication networks have completely shut down. Patients are taking, you know, hours to get to the hospital. Um, and so that was the context in which he said that, that, that you know, the, the entire meaning and experience of time has shifted. Um, and that was true in the health sector as it was in every, any, every other sector, right? And so when, when the coronavirus arrives, it is sort of like in the middle of this context where, you know, once again, we heard doctors saying, you know, it took me an hour and a half to download the WHO guidelines, or it's really difficult to keep up with the, uh, you know, with the latest information on how to deal with this pandemic about which, you know, there was sort of so much new information coming out every day that they needed to be updated on. And so that sort of exacerbates the vulnerabilities that Kashmiris were already facing. Um, you know, in terms of like the, the impact, because we've been talking a little bit about gender and sexuality and the sort of like, you know, the, the gender and sexual rights uh, script that gets mobilized by the Indian state so often, um, you know, Azad, to go back to your point about uh, how, you know, they, they can talk about, um, you know, women's rights on the one hand with no acknowledgement whatsoever about the violence against women that they themselves, that the state forces have um, um, perpetrated, right? Um, and, you know, in the context of the impact on LGBT populations, it's kind of similar. And so, you know, um, Kashmiri journalists reported on the impact on um, the transgender community, for example, after August 5th, uh, where, you know, they rely on the internet, they rely on technologies to stay in contact with each other. They experience the kind of isolation that queer communities experience everywhere. And they are impacted by the lockdown, like, you know, quite seriously. Um, you know, the, there, there was a sort of, and this happens regularly in Kashmir, I think in the middle of lockdowns is wedding cancellations are routine, right? So the sort of normal rhythms of life are suspended. And, um, you know, the transgender community, like, a, you know, a number of them are um, sort of working within the wedding economy. And so that, that source of livelihood also gets um, disrupted. So all of, you know, all of those vulnerabilities don't quite sort of like, um, enter the register. And, you know, it's also worth saying while we're talking about the hypocrisies of, of these kinds of languages, like I think the transgender rights bill, the Indian transgender rights bill passed around the same time as the abrogation and was vociferously opposed by the trans community in India, 
Um, and so, you know, once again, kind of pointing to what an eyewash um, the, the discourse of LGBT rights and, and um, gender rights um, can be. Um, you know, in terms of, because I study, uh, you know, I study visual texts and cultural texts, I do want to also, um, you know, register the way in which Kashmiri visual artists, um, I think just very quickly um, managed to visually represent the, the impact of lockdown and what lockdown meant in the context of Kashmir, right? So the graphic artist Malik Sajad, um, you know, shortly after Modi announced his infamous, like, lockdown, Malik Sajad had this, this, um, cartoon strip or a, a graphic strip that uh, that he uh, published in the New York Times where, you know, he represents a Kashmiri family watching the news and watching sort of like, you know, Modi um, on the television, watching the broadcast of this three-week lockdown. And, you know, then elderly man in the, in the panel says, we have been under lockdown for three decades. And um, that is the that is the title of the of, of the whole panel as well, right? That's the title of the piece. Um, there's another, um, you know, graphic. Um, in fact, I wish I wish this were a visual format. I would have shown some of these images. But um, Mir Suhail had another um, graphic where he represented the lockdown as as a kind of cage that is sort of like has been placed over another cage, um, which houses a, a Kashmiri man who's kind of huddled on the inside, right? And on the outer cage, it says Kashmir lockdown. And so that's a way of sort of registering that, you know, for the Kashmiri who is already caged and who has already got this, had this experience of lockdown, the further restriction of, of movement, um, you know, uh, it's it's not if 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 you're if you're if you're locked in a room of a house and it makes little, like relatively little difference whether the house itself is locked or not, right? Whether there's a sort of like an additional um, lockdown. Having said that, of course, I think it's also true that um, you know that the pandemic has exacerbated all of these health effects um, that that we were talking about and has kind of um, I think contributed to the health crisis. Um, but I, I think it's important to sort of register that the continuities as well as the breaks. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's a good um, to think of, you know, Kashmir as, uh, as as some kind of a Russian doll, you know, this lock, yeah. it's like a lockdown inside a military siege, inside a curfew, which is inside the occupation and so on and so forth. Um, and there's a, I mean, all of these cartoonists, for instance, or visual artists that uh, Deepthi mentioned, um, there's also this uh, deep sense of irony and absurdity that pervades uh, everyday Kashmiri life. Um, um, you know, I have, we have families there. I have family there um, in Kashmir still. I speak, try to speak to them every day, but I also see that as a luxury because after August 5, for four or five months, I was unable to speak to anyone, um, you know, there. And um and um, there's so much dry humor now as well, because uh, when you are like under so much pressure, um, lockdowns and everything, um, these uh, newer lockdowns don't register so much. Uh, um, I mean, everyday life in Kashmir, daily life in Kashmir is um, enormously difficult. You know, when I get to visit Kashmir, uh, even small chores like going to the grocery store or getting some medicine um, becomes um, an obscene trip in a way, you know, because you just like, you never know whether you're able to return and wh when uh, military might come in and uh, people will start running away or where a grenade might explode, um, all of that, or if like a tire bursts and, you know, uh, people like scamper, 
Um, so it's just a little absurd situation. Um, I, you know, from 1990 onwards, um, when Indian military came in, occupied hospitals, the Kashmiri people uh, had tremendous difficulty getting medical care. Um, Kashmir is also uh, kind of like a haven of cheap fake drugs. Um, you know, so much fake stuff comes into Kashmir uh, and um, so many people, like uh, the, I, there was a MSF, uh, Minister of Song Frontiers report a few years ago, which uh, stated that, you know, um, a large chunk of the population, perhaps 40% of the population suffers from some kind of uh, mental illness and depression. Um, so there's a large number of people in Kashmir who are, um, uh, who are on medication and all of that is going to relate to the conflict or directly attributable um, uh, to the conflict. Then there are people who are on, you know, who have, who are suffering from heart conditions, diabetes, and other things, who can't get care, um, you know, when things go under lockdown. That, uh, I mean, Deepti men mentioned them, these uh, issues as well. And uh, curfews then add to this another layer of uh, trauma and suffering that people have to undergo. Um, so state violence takes the, on this new, this other register, which which is not registered as violence um, outside because you know, these are things that happen on an everyday basis. We only, because oh, we're uh, very visual, we, uh, we see violence primarily as something spectacular, a bomb exploding or somebody's body um, being shorn by pallets or uh, bullets. But these other forms of violence um, don't register uh, so much, but we need to keep those in mind as well. Thank you, Junaid. Uh, it's like um, sort of like how everyday violence sort of becomes goes from the spectacular to the mundane. I feel that's what you touched on very eloquently. Um, so I guess I want to end our session by just asking the three of you, how might people from just South Asia and even in the diaspora at this point in time, um, which is October 2020, express solidarity with the people of Kashmir in Indian occupied Kashmir primarily? Uh, it's a good question. It's a big question. Um, I think that, you know, Kashmiris in the diaspora, I can say are, are just at the beginning of starting to get organized, right? Um, and like South Asian groups in the diaspora are just at the beginning of figuring out how we can build our collective power and have, you know, tangible actions and things that we want to do. So. Um, you know, as I also said on the last podcast, I think that Stand with Kashmir is an excellent resource that is often, you know, posting new information and campaigns, um, whether that might be, you know, campaigns to, to pass uh, or have hearings with the, with the U.S. government or something more local, you know, Saucy, we do New York City specific uh, counteractions and things to raise awareness and bring political education uh, around Kashmir. But I think that, you know, th those things are really, are really forthcoming. And I think that beginning to change the narrative around the occupation of Kashmir as an occupation and as something that, you know, I think Janet and Deepti both said this at one point, but an issue, not a quote unquote issue, right? Because Kashmir is, I was like the Kashmir issue because that posits the issue as being one of the ownership, like who gets the ownership, right? Pakistan or India. There's no room for separatism. There's no room for autonomy in that discourse. So I think that doing that kind of political education with the people around you, especially people within the diaspora who hold 
power. So upper caste folks and Hindu people who will be able to affect more change, who might be able to mobilize more resources um, and get to folks who are in positions of power, I think is, is an important part of the work that we're trying to do now. I can add to that um, in terms of uh, sort of gestures of feminist solidarity that are often um, extended um, towards Kashmir, especially on the part of Indian feminists. And I'm reminded of this by, you know, Junaid reminded us of the sort of the, the case of the rape of the young girl, the young Gujar um, girl, Asifa, a couple of years ago. And, you know, we saw in that moment, um, because there was this, uh, you know, kind of active movement against sexual violence that was already underway because of all of the activism around the sort of like Delhi rape and of 2012 and so on. A lot of um, prominent women in a, in a sort of like feminist spirit um, expressing solidarity um, and outrage about what had happened to Asifa, but kind of claiming her as um, our daughter, right? As kind of India's daughter in a sense. And so, you know, there we have an example of how within sort of like, you know, wrapped up within a, a feminist gesture of solidarity is already a sort of like, you know, a, a kind of settler mindset that's naturalized. And so, you know, watching out for that and, you know, thinking about when, when solidarity is being extended from India by Indian feminists to Kashmiri feminists in particular, um, to think about that, um, you know, from, from a transnational um, standpoint. So I'm gonna you know, pass it on to, to Janae and then maybe we can come back and, and talk about some other things. Um, thank you, Azad and Kandipti. Um, you know, over the uh, last uh, few years, I increasingly think that the primary responsibility really lies with uh, well-meaning Indian people, uh, wherever they are, um, in, in India or in, uh, the, in Europe, US. See, yes, India is sliding towards some kind of authoritarian system, but it's nominally still an electoral democracy. And whatever happens in Kashmir happens in their name. Um, you know, so ethically, politically, it is primarily their responsibility um, that um, they affect change in their government's policies and behavior towards the people of Kashmir and um, undercaste people, uh, women and other marginalized communities uh, within the Indian nation space. In the U.S., there is, uh, you know, we have, uh, there's a strong Indian diaspora. There are many of this diaspora is uh, quite nationalist, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, this condition of diasporicness in, in itself evokes uh, nationalism. Um, and they bring Indian narrative, traditional Indian narrative uh, on Kashmir uh, to them. But there are also, you know, second, third generation Indians here, young people who are born here who would like to know more about their roots, um, where they come from. And it's essential that they understand um, that, you know, that India is not this DDLJ uh, kind of space, this Bollywoodian uh, construction, that uh, India is, a, a, I mean, in, in, in the US, uh, they support progressive politics, you know, they support, um, um, a progressive regime, they wouldn't want an extreme right. I'm, I'm talking about the second, third generation Indian young people who are in colleges, who are in schools. They wouldn't want a, a racist, a supremacist uh, regime to take over the uh, US permanently. And they shouldn't, you know, uh, they should uh, also not have that kind of thing in India. Like they cannot support uh, liberal policies in the US while supporting conservative right wing policies back in India. Um, so that's one. Um, the other thing is that within, 
within South Asia itself, like, um, you know, there are different groups. Um, Pakistani population has a sense, uh, you know, uh, their own share of responsibility. They must bear upon their government um, and convince them that, you know, uh, it's okay to raise the Kashmir issue internationally. And Kashmiris generally very welcome that. But um, let Kashmiris speak, you know, let Kashmiris represent themselves. Um, let their voices uh, come out rather than you imposing your own version of what should happen to Kashmir. Um, and Indians in India, uh, of course, um, they are primarily responsible. They are, they bear the primary responsibility towards what is happening. Um, in, I mean, many years ago, um, you know, Kashmir, you know, activists, social activists, political activists in India had argued that if India continues to its um, scorched earth policies in Kashmir, it's going to come back and bite us. Uh, and that's precisely what is happening. I, I don't like the term Kashmirization of India because really Indians have not yet seen what India does in Kashmir. Uh, but um, I think that there is a some degree of reality to it. All of these things that are happening to in, institutions, be that JNU, be that even the Bollywood or um, you know, in what is happening in Hathras and elsewhere, um, is uh, you know India is like taking from its own playbook and applying it to any form of dissent that emerges against the dominant regime now. So you know unless Kashmiris, uh, you know the uh, Indians are um, you know able to you know um, sort of clear their heads uh, to undo this long history um, that has uh, uh, been you know pushed into their heads and then. Uh, kind of join side by side the struggle with Kashmiris to liberate Kashmir. I don't think uh, there is a hope for South Asia or India in particular. So this brings us to the end of our session. I really want to thank our speakers for uh, joining us for the part two of the Kashmir series. Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in.